A lot of the time our practice, maybe this is true really most of the time, comes down to some exploration of finding uh, quality of balance. Shows up in all kinds of ways. And, and the teachings are classically called, the Buddha's teaching is called the middle way, the middle path. And it points to this quality of, of balance, a place in between extremes. And, and in this teaching of the middle way, it's said to be the extremes between, um, or the, the balance between the extremes of self-mortification, of self-denial, of different ways that that might occur on one hand, and uh, some kind of uh, self-indulgence on the other hand, these extremes. Now that we can look at the way this quality of balance can shows up and, and ex the exploration of that in a number of different ways, it's, we can see it in uh, the ongoing dance of finding the balance of effort and relaxation in our practice, how we approach our practice. The balance of energy and effort and tranquility or calm. And the way this shows up um, and, and the way that that's a and a constant exploration, it isn't, never gets fixed. What's appropriate in one moment may not be in another moment in this regard. A balance between having a realistic assessment of the situation we face in our practice and looking at habits of mind and ways we get caught and seeing this realistically and at the same time uh, not falling into um, looking at ourselves as just a problem that needs to be fixed. We can see it in terms of opening to uh, suffering in the world, in our own minds and hearts, in the world around us, and the, the magnitude of that in so many ways at times can seem overwhelming. Finding a way to actually open to that without falling into a state of despair or defeat it can seem so overwhelming. And so the entire path can be seen as a movement towards finding greater balance in all kinds of different ways. And you could say the culmination of the path is a state of uh, supreme or um, highly developed balance where the mind and heart rest in, in an unshakable kind of balance an unassailable balance of mind and heart. And you could say the Buddha's realization is this culmination where the mind and heart are, are in a, a plate of place of deep, uh, unassailable balance, unshakable balance. This is a verse I heard uh, one, an early, from an early poem, one of the poems of the, the uh, monks or nuns, uh, at the time of the Buddha, there were these collections of the Teragata, the Terigata, these verses. Some of them are enlightenment poems, and this is just a, an excerpt from one of these. If your mind becomes firm like a rock and no longer shakes in a world where everything is shaking, your mind will be your greatest friend and suffering will not come your way. There's a few things that I find useful and interesting and quite beautiful in this poem, this idea that one's mind might be one's greatest friend. I mean, do we even, does this seem like even a possibility to us? You know, so often we, seen our, our, we see our own mind and heart as, as an adversary. You know, it seems to be just giving us problems. We don't see it as our friend. How would we develop a mind that is our friend, that is maybe our greatest friend, our true friend? And if we get nothing more out of time in practice, time on a retreat like this, and some taste or sense of this as a possibility, then this would be an excellent use of our time. But we might think of this in this poem, this idea of your mind firm, no longer shaking, as a mind resting in a place of deep balance. You could say it's not shaking because it's resting in a balanced place. It's not shaken by things. A mind imbued with the quality of equanimity. Equanimity points to a kind of um, real openness to experience, to life. 
but a balanced kind of openness that avoids extremes of falling into reactivity in relation to what to experience. An openness that allows us to meet our life without falling into the uh, reactions of grasping and resistance and aversion. <coughs> this quality is very powerful just in its own right. It's one of the Brahma Viharas, the divine abidings. It's a factor of awakening. It's one of the paramis that we've been focusing on this week. So it, it's powerful in and of itself, but it also is, uh, has the quality of uh, supporting and strengthening other things. It's, it supports wisdom. When the mind rests in a balanced place, when it's not shaking in this way, then we're able to actually stay with, land on, and, um, and rest in the truth of things, the truth of the moment as it is, long enough that we can see below the surface of things, long enough for insight and understanding to actually arise. We can rest in it, the truth of the moment, without falling into struggle and resistance or some form of identification where we're lost in all that it seems to mean about me. It forms the basis for our ability to see into the conditioned nature of life. It gives us uh, a way of seeing that allows us to see that things arise due to causes and conditions. And, and out of seeing this, we don't take everything so personally. There's some space around experience. We're not just uh, uh, totally identified with it all. It really forms the, the basis, the foundation for metta, for kindness, for compassion, for empathetic joy, for them to actually function and, and flower forth into fullness. They're, they're, they rest on the basis of this balance of mind. It gives metta the possibility to actually connect with um, the wish that we share with all beings to be happy, even beings whose actions seem to be causing them and others to suffer. We understand that at the base of that, there is a being who's trying to be happy. Equanimity lets us actually see that, see with this balanced view. So it imbues uh, loving kindness with qualities of patience and acceptance and non-attachment so that we can open and care even when those we love do things that we find that, that seem self-destructive, seem like they're only causing them to suffer. We don't have to throw them out of our heart. We can still wish them well. We can truly, it's what allows metta to flower forth to the point where we can truly wish all beings to be well. Offer this to all beings, no matter what. It fosters uh, the, the courage within compassion that allows us to actually show up in times of pain and suffering in our own mind and heart, in the world that we encounter. It's part of life. It allows us to act when that's possible and appropriate. <coughs> to name injustice and respond with actions to alleviate suffering. It also gives us the balance of mind and the courage to show up when there's nothing we can do and actually stay there and not abandon ourselves, not abandon others when there's nothing we can do. And we can bear witness to and sit with suffering with genuine empathy, totally connected and really there without falling into uh, states of pity, getting overwhelmed, grief or despair. It, it balances this third of the Brahma Viharas, mudita, this empathetic joy we haven't spoken about too much, this delighting in the good fortune and happiness of others. It keeps it from falling into extremes, what's called the near enemy, which is a kind of over-exuberance, a kind of, of giddiness um, that is um, more self-absorbed, is unbalanced in that it, our, our happiness becomes all about us and we lose sight of the fact that it's another's good fortune that we're delighting in. It's, I'm so happy about what's going on. We lose, we lose the connection, becomes uh, out of balance in that way. Or it, it gets out of balance in the, what's called the far enemy, these Brahma Viharas are said to have near and near and far neighbors or enemies, things that resemble them, things that are their opposite. 
So the opposite of this empathetic joy, delight in another's good fortune, would be jealousy or envy. And equanimity is what keeps, uh, keeps things from falling into that, where we would begrudge another's happiness as though there's only so much happiness to go around. These painful, destructive mind states that, um, that just it's as though uh, another is having good fortune, that means less for us somehow. It limits us. Equanimity balances this quality so that we see that another's good fortune doesn't eliminate us in any way. There's a confidence that we can delight in another's happiness and good fortune, knowing that this doesn't diminish our own potential on any, wa- on any level. It actually brings us more joy. <coughs> Many of you know Gil, Franz Dahl, one of the founders of this place. Many of you, he would be your teacher, I think. And uh, I read a really great article by him where he was looking at this quality of equanimity. I've uh, used that article as a as a reference for this. And in the in that writing, he pointed to um, the word we have as equanimity. Actually, um, there are two words in Pali that speak to different aspects of this, and it was I thought it was very interesting and useful. So uh, we use the word upeka a lot. That's the word I've been using today. And um, I think, but anyway, upeka we know as uh, the word we use for the factor of awakening, for this uh, parami is upeka. And um, this word literally means something like to look over. And it relates to the quality or the aspect of equanimity that has um, that arises from the power of a broad view, a kind of broad observing view, ability to see without getting caught up in the minutia and details of what we're seeing. So it's seeing the big picture, kind of wide view. And I think in that article or somewhere, someone compared this to um, the view of a grandmother, the grandmother's love for her grandchildren, where she, she loves them, but thanks to the, her experience raising her own kids, she's not so likely to get caught up in the dramas of their lives. It's a more balanced view. And see that, that people live through all these changes. And when equanimity is strong in our experience, we have the possibility to take this kind of broader view where we're not so embroiled in life's uh, details and all of the stuff that uh, seems to be happening there and not so caught up, for example, in the world of our thoughts and emotions and all of the apparent issues that are seem to be there that we have to somehow get swirled up in that. We have a broader view. We see all these things arise and pass. And then the second word that Gil uh, spoke about as um, having this quality or being translated to equanimity is a compound word. I love in Pali, you just string, if you want, you string words together, shorter ones to make make longer ones. So it's one of these great sounding words, tatramajatata. Sounds like a kind of fancy Italian dessert or something. It's the three words. The first one, tatra, means there, or sometimes it means um, all these things. Maja is like the word for mud in Majima Nikaya, the middle length. Maja is the middle, uh, means middle. And tata means to stand or to pose. And so when they get put together, it means to stand in the middle of, of this or stand in the middle of all these things. And this points to the quality of equanimity that... Um, that allows us to remain centered in, in the middle of all of life's changes and all of that's happening, and this quality of a kind of inner integrity or inner strength, inner balance that comes from, from the inside, uh, qualities of integrity and well-being and vitality and confidence and inner strength. You can see it. Uh, it's, it's like something that keeps us upright, like the, the keel of a sailboat. I don't know if any of you are have ever sailed or, or seen a sailboat out of water. I, my <coughs> I lived in San Francisco for 10 years and, and um, uh, part of that time, some most it's about seven years, seven or eight years, I shared uh, an old fire station that had been converted to a place um, 
where we were living, we had the, I had the top floor with my uh, housemate and we, um, I think I mentioned it in another talk perhaps, we um, got a little break in our rent because the uh, owner, our landlord, was building a sailboat in, there was a yard next to the place because it was a big space there and he had kind of braced this hull of a sailboat against the building and he was doing all the finish work on it. 40-foot sailboat eventually finished and hauled it off and sailed away <laughs> for a while. Then he sold it and started building another one. But uh, at one point he was he was res one of, he was putting weight in this keel and the keel was huge. I hadn't it was the first time I was really close to a sailboat out of water, and they're very big, and he was filling it full of lead weights. He was recycling old batteries and getting the lead out of them and filling it with lead. Thousands and thousands of pounds in this uh, keel. And then when you see a boat on out sailing in strong winds, they lean way over, but they come back. They have this ability to lean, but they remain stable. They stay upright, and they come back to an upright position. So it's that kind of inner core there that allows that stability even in strong winds. So this is another aspect, this inner strength, this ability to stand centered in the middle of everything. <coughs> One of our colleagues uh, who we teach with sometimes in Massachusetts at the long retreats there had a great image that, um, that uh, she used uh, to point to certain qualities of equanimity that I want to borrow. This is from Winnie Nazarko, uh, using this image of um, a surfer, a skilled surfer, to point to some aspects of equanimity. Because uh, if you ever watch here, we're near a lot of surfers in Santa Cruz. Maybe anyone here a surfer? No surfers here. Yeah, okay, you got one surfer. So a really skilled surfer has has this kind of fluid responsiveness to changing conditions right in the moment. There, there's this way that there's this direct and intimate connection with the world, with the wave, for example, where y there's this spontaneous but also relaxed and very centered response to what's happening. If you're going to surf a wave, you have to be relaxed and you have to r respond to what's happening as the wave moves. They're right in that immediacy of that. So there's this stability and balance, but it's not rigid or tight. There's a flexibility. And you see people learning to surf and they're kind of stiff <laughs> and they fall <laughs> over. <laughs> so there's this um, balance. It's, there's not rigid or tightness there. That doesn't work. But there's this um, you know, total responsiveness. So it's, it's this, this interesting dance of, of total presence but this fluid responsiveness there, kind of spacious stability. Uh, I have a dear friend who I stayed with, uh, often stay with when I visit the Bay Area, who's one of my older friends, oldest friends, and his son is a teenager now. And uh, two or three years ago, he, someone gave him, a, his, my friend's son, a present that is like, um, well, it's kind of the size of a long skateboard. It's just the board part and it's on a, um, a kind of, I can't think of a word. It's like a, a roller thing that it fits on. It was developed by a guy who was a, an Olympic snowboarder. And it's to, probably some of you have used something like this, but it's, it's a balance board on this roller and it has these blocks so it won't slip all the way off, but it, it's, it's, it's on this thing. And I, I was playing with it in the house and I was trying to get it to a point of balance and just stay there. And, you know, my friend's son, he could just hang out on this thing and text his friends, and he was just, you know, it was like <laughs> nothing, you know, and I'm kind of near the wall <laughs> trying to do this thing. And I figured out at one point, oh, I can't get it to a point of place of, this is obvious, of course. I can't stay in a balanced place. What I have to do is relax, soften my gaze, and keep moving. And once I started doing that, it was fun, and I could kind of never got as good as him, but, you know, he was 16 years old, and I'm an old guy. <laughs> but it was just so interesting that I was trying to stay tight and balanced in the middle of it. And it's obvious, but it was, you know, for me, it was a, a learning there. Oh, I have to just keep moving and respond to it and bend my knees and relax everything. 
my gaze and the rest of the body. <coughs> it's helpful, I think, when we explore this subject of equanimity, of balance, in all these sort of different ways I'm looking at it, that one thing that's useful is to say what it isn't. Because there can be sometimes confusion about this, you know, and we need to be really clear that it isn't some kind of suppression or denial, some disconnection. These are reflections of, of, of um, resistance or some way to try to control things that, that from a place of tightness, trying to either shut things down so we don't uh, feel them or deny what's happening in some way. There's nothing in, in that's not a part of equanimity in any way, or, or like a kind of fake okayness, oh yeah, I'm okay with it, when actually we're not okay at all with it. <laughs> we're kind of denying how we're feeling because we want to, you know, have this, oh yeah, I'm okay, it's okay. It's kind of a dismissal or a denial, like a fake kind of equanimity. But actually, these are responses of, of resistance, fear, and fear, different kinds of aversion. But equanimity is, true equanimity is based on what we could say is a radical intention to be open and connected. So it's, it's actually the, the polar opposite of anything like suppression or denial. It's this radical intention to be present. In, um, in this equanimity as a Brahma Vihara, and I mentioned before this, uh, there's near enemies and near neighbors of these Brahma Viharas. Um, Equanimity's near neighbor that it gets sometimes confused with is a quality of indifference or apathy, you could say. Because sometimes indifference, it can feel kind of cooled out and a little spacious and non-reactive, but it's actually not connected. It's actually disconnected. It's a kind of withdrawal or or, um, some kind of um, defeated place an attitude of, of res- resignation or, or um, defeat. And sometimes people, when they think about this quality of equanimity, they think that it points to some kind of, um, some kind of indifference in this way of this near neighbor or insensitivity or numbness where we just, we're not reactive because we just don't feel anything. We just don't care, kind of dis- disengaged, no longer touched by life. But there isn't, this isn't part of it in any way. It's not about indifference or numbness or not feeling. There's no apathy or disconnection. There's this quality of non-preferential energy. So we're totally present, maybe even radically present, a radical kind of intimacy with life but we're not pushed and pulled around it. There's this deep acceptance of the truth of the way things are that's not a posture of defeat, but a posture of, of uh, a, a real aliveness. But we're not pushed or pulled around by our reactivity to what's happening. So it's like we're fully present and free. Free to respond. You could say that as equanimity is strengthens, then we actually free up a lot of energy that allows us to respond to life from a place of balance and openness and wisdom rather than from a place of reactivity and kind of uh, deep conditioned habits or knee-jerk habits and patterns. So you could say we free up internal energy that allows us to then respond to the world, respond to what's external. <coughs> Another way to speak about this, you could say that in the absence of um, kind of c- more compulsive patterns of reactivity, that our intelligence, natural intelligence and wisdom are free to function. Those actually, we discover they're there when we get these other things out of the way. And a kind of wise discernment can arise and make choices what's to be done, if anything is to be done, what's appropriate, whether to act or not. See what the situation calls for. And it's, it's, it's not a place of inaction or disconnection. It's the, the opposite of anything that might feel like apathy. We're totally there and we, we can act when that's what to do. But it gives us the, the 
some space and balance so that we can actually see what, what's appropriate here, what's worth doing, what can I do? And so it gives us a kind of protection in life and, uh, and an in this inner strength I was talking about that allows us to respond and um, from a place of balance and clarity in light of um, what are called the eight worldly winds sometimes, these uh, things that blow, th- the worldly winds that blow through our lives of praise and blame and gain and loss, fame and disrepute, disrepute joy and sorrow. You know, life is always presenting us with these. Sometimes it's called the 10,000 joys, the 10,000 sorrows. And life, uh, these, these worldly winds, these changes, they're always affecting our lives and often in very unpredictable ways. Certainly not ways that we ask for all the time. And blame can come our way when we're just doing our best to be helpful. I've certainly had that experience. Gain can arise out of a, a situation of apparent loss. If we really look, we'll see that in, in our life, change is the one thing we can count on as a constant. That's always going to be there. And we do start to see that everything arises out of this flow of causality, of causes and conditions, things that come together and fall apart. And that is mostly, at least in great part, it's out of our control. It's not that we have no agency. We do what we can and we we add our part into the flow of life and we can direct things, but we don't have ultimate control. And this quality of change, that's, that's just the nature of things. And so at some point, it might start to dawn on us that if we can't control and put a stop to all this change, all this arising and passing of things, if we can't fix, fix things and deal with it from that angle, then maybe we're going to have to find some other way to find a sense of uh, empowerment, <coughs> you could say, to find a, a way to find ease. So if we go back to this image that I borrowed from uh, Winnie Nazarko of the surfer, then we'll see where we're going to find that sense of empowerment and ease is by learning how to, how to ride life's changes, to harmonize with that change. So what Andre was speaking about so much last night, to, to actually come into harmony, balance, a wise and and realistic relationship to these truths of change, unreliability, uncontrollability. That's where we're going to find a place, not in resisting it or figuring out a way to just, okay, I'm going to stay right here. It don't work. It won't work. So we're going to learn, we're learning how to surf that. (laughs) How we surf our life, you could say. So how how do we how do we learn how to open in this way? How do, it sounds kind of good maybe, but then how do we actually do this? How do we practice? How do we develop this? How do we find balance in light of this truth of change and all that, the unpredictability, and all that can come to ride the waves of just even a single medit- period of meditation? I mean, think about all the waves that come through just sitting here for 45 minutes, let alone a day, let alone a lifetime. How are we going to find a way to ride those waves? And so, as in anything we might say, this quality of mindful awareness is the key. This is what makes anything possible. With this, everything is possible. Without it, nothing. This is the key that opens the door to everything You know, if we think back to um, maybe just the instructions here on this retreat or the first time anyone ever gave you any meditation instructions, whenever that may have been, and that's a long time ago for some of us, first time we had meditation instructions. And we might remember that somewhere in there we were told, well, this is the practice of opening to everything, to whatever is arising. Bring mindfulness, bring awareness to everything, including what's pleasant and unpleasant. 
And you know, opening to pleasant sounds, that sounds pretty good. We're down with that. Okay, I'll do that. But unpleasant, that sounds like a bad idea. Why would you want to do that? Somebody made, they made a mistake in the instructions, clearly. You know, we didn't come to meditation to sit with, did any of you come here with the idea, oh, I'm literally, it's going to be great. I'm going to sit with these unpleasant feelings in my body and mind. <laughs> oh, I'm so looking forward to that. <laughs> you know, we, 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 <laughs> we don't sign up for that one. <laughs> you know, we want bliss and love and light and we want to dissolve in a nice comfy mist or something. That sounds good. That's what we're after. But, you know, sitting with this pain in my body or my heart. And then we sit down and the, the people who are giving us instructions who, who made this tragic error tell us if unpleasant experience arises, sit with that. If aversion arises, notice that. <laughs> Self-judgment, yep, open to that. Aches and pains, difficult mind states, open to them. Sit with those two. They don't say only that, but that's part of the deal, right? It just seems like a tragic mistake. <laughs> and we don't want to do it, and it seems like a bad idea, and we're not very good at it, especially when we're first beginners. And our usual reaction is to get away from what we find unpleasant as soon as possible. If we can't escape from it, then we're going to have to get into battle mode and we're going to have to fight against it. It's this fight or flight kind of response. <coughs> and when we're new to meditation in the early stages of our practice, we think often that if, if something unpleasant arises, that, that it is a mistake, that it's evidence that something has gone wrong. Either they did give us the wrong instructions, they made a mistake when they were going over that and included those things, or, or that or that we're doing it wrong, that's much more likely we feel like, well, I must be doing it wrong. If I was doing it right, these things wouldn't arise. And clearly it's, it's my fault. That would, that's my, that would have always been my, I would go there. I'd, the teachers are okay, but I, I'm doing it wrong. But, you know, unpleasant experiences, painful feelings, they're just part of life. They come sometimes. It's the way it is. It's not the whole picture. We get that mix, of course. But if our strategy in our meditation practice in our life is to fight against or deny or try to get away from what's unpleasant, painful, it's like, you know, the classic story of the second arrow many of you have, have referred to and spoken where we have not only the unpleasant feeling but then the aversion and resistance it's like we're stabbing another arrow into ourselves we're shooting ourselves with a second arrow not realizing that we're the ones who are holding the the bow and shooting it if we struggle to hold on to what's pleasant the other side to cling to that to try to get that to stay then we suffer from the burn of clinging <coughs> When it changes and disappears, it's like, it's like <coughs> holding onto a slipping rope. We're getting rope burn and it hurts. If we're getting rope burn, there's only one solution, and that's to let go, let go of that slipping rope. And so if we do let go of the struggle and resistance and um, this clinging or, or resistance to what's happening, if we actually find ways to let go of that struggle, then we don't suffer when experience is unpleasant. We know it for what it is. It's unpleasant feeling. It's like this. And it can arise and pass and it doesn't have to destroy our peace of mind. And when we let go of trying to hold on to the pleasant, to try to keep it here when its nature is to change and disappear at some point, then we can connect with and enjoy the pleasant and appreciate it and delight in that goodness when it comes. You don't have to deny it. Yes, great. But we don't have to fall into uh, despair and unhappiness when it, when it changes because it will, because that's just the nature of things. <coughs> so you could say that, that uh, our training through mindful awareness and cultivating qualities like equ equanimity, then, then this is um, a training in learning how to connect to open and become 
fully present with all experience, whether it's pleasant, unpleasant, or neither of these things. And, and so you could say we're learning that there aren't good waves and bad waves, they're just our waves. And some of them are like this and some of them are like that. And we can train ourselves to hold them all in the same way with this balance of mind, this power of equanimity. And this is the possibility of a mind that can become our friend, our true friend, this balance of mind. And it'd be great if we could, you know, hear about this and then decide, okay, that's how I'm going to be. I'm just going to be that way now. But it's, we can't just decide, well, I don't know. I haven't been able to just decide, make that decision and then have it be true. It's, it's something that we learn. It's something that grows within us through uh, practice. That's why we practice. That's why we do this, is to learn. And it's not, it's not you know, it, what I'm saying makes, may make a certain kind of sense. It's not rocket science. It's not that we just didn't figure it out. It's a different kind of learning. It's learning it in ourselves. <coughs> so how do we do this? How do we learn? It's through this process of actually starting again, connecting again, in each moment, each time we do that, opening again. And so in meditation, we start simply by feeling the body sitting, connecting with the movement of the breath within that, for example, some, some fairly neutral, hopefully maybe even slightly pleasant experience that's there. Start to stabilize our attention with that so that we can get a little bit of ability to rest in the moment. And just as we could imagine, uh, I know I've seen at some point, I'm pretty sure this is when the, when the people are learning how to surf, when sometimes at least when uh, people are teaching people, uh, others, how to, how to surf, the beginning thing is they, they actually put the board on the beach and stand up on it there <laughs> where it's not moving so much <laughs> and practice going from being down on your knees to standing up. You stand up on the beach, so you start with these initial kinds of skills, because that's useful. And things, it gives us something we can build on, this kind of graduated approach where we start simply. And then the way we learn then is to actually start trying it and falling off, making mistakes. It's like learning to walk. You know, when, when toddlers, when babies are at the age where they're learning how to walk, a lot of it is falling. <laughs> And I'm pretty sure, those of you who probably have raised kids or have studied this stuff, but I'm pretty sure that that falling in is part of, they have to do that. If you keep them from falling, it, it's, it's not good for the development. That, that practicing and falling is, is really required there. They have to do that. And so we do our own version of that in this connecting and uh, allowing and, and sh finding some balance and then getting out of balance and falling and getting caught, caught by our inner world, caught by these habits of mind, caught by resistance, caught by clinging. We see it, we come back to, we get lost, we come back. We start again. And as equanimity develops, as the mindfulness gets more steadiness, then we can stay there more of the time. Our balance starts to improve, we do get better. It's like riding a bike or learning to walk. We actually can do that. We can open more and more and we fall less of the time in a certain sense. But it takes incredible patience and steadiness, a kind of dedication and perseverance. And, and it takes incredible kindness and forgiveness, maybe those two above all, this willingness to start again, to not take it personally and get, get angry with ourselves when we fall and have to start again. And we have to remind ourselves that this, this is a big project. This is a path that takes a long time. For most of us anyway, that's the case. We're unlearning habits that we've been practicing for maybe for lifetimes, but certainly for a long time. And the only way we're gonna possibly retrain that and unlearn these habits is to actually stick with it and be, have some, some gentle resolve. We say to ourselves, I'm in, I'm in it for the long haul in some way. 
That's what's going to make the dif difference because until we are fully enlightened, there will be times when we get caught and when we're lost in some confusion. <coughs> Something that can help develop and, and uh, cultivate this quality are um, to cultivate qualities of mind that actually help uh, incline in that direction and support this quality of balance, of equanimity, give rise to it, sustain it, encourage it. And there's, we could probably think of all kinds of ways. I'm going to mention <coughs> things that we could do that would actually help us in this way. I'm going to mention just a couple of them. <coughs> Excuse me. So the verse first of these that I want to mention has to do with living a, a life of um, an ethical life, a life of a virtue and integrity, you could say. And when we live with care, when we bring attention to what, how we're, what we're doing and uh, try to live carefully, this um, intention and um, around non-harming, for example, then we can feel conf a certain confidence in our, in our actions, in our words, if we're bringing care and attention to speech, for example, to what we do. And, and there's an inner strength and balance that, that is fostered by this very much. It's born of a, a feeling of a growing blamelessness. We feel we, we won't be blamed because we're acting uh, with integrity and care. And, and the text has said that one where this is highly developed, uh, an ethical life, one can go into an assembly of any group, any assembly, and feel blameless there. And y it's obvious, you can see, if the mind and heart are caught by patterns of regret and remorse because of uh, heedless actions that we've done, ways that we've caused harm, we're going to be whirled about by that restlessness and that lack of ease there, and we won't be able to come to balance. That's not going to it's going to take us away from balance. We'll be caught by all that. But a life of integrity, we don't f easily fall prey to patterns of remorse and worry. And there's this deep kind of self-respect and confidence that can start to grow from this. And that really supports this quality of balance, of equanimity. <coughs> the meditation practice itself and this development of, uh, of the mind, the balance and stability and, and strength through concentration and mindfulness that comes in our practice, this non-distractedness, we develop these qualities of calm that come from that. Concentration. When the mind is uh, less distracted, when there's more tranquility, then, then we're not, uh, that helps us come to this place of balance where the worldly winds don't blow us around so much. We're more centered. This uh, stability of, of non-distractedness, the calm concentration that does, even though some of you don't believe it, it does grow with practice. And it's happening even though it might not feel like it very much. It lets, us, it lets the, the mind rest in the truth of things and we're connecting with life as it really is rather than how we think it's supposed to be, how it should be, some idea we have. We can do things to enhance our sense of, of uh, well-being through simple things. And, and that would be different for each of us, but perhaps it's, it has to do with um, just taking a little extra time to open to the beauty in the world that may be there, even in unexpected places. Maybe time uh, in, in, uh, among trees and plants and beautiful flowers around here, for example. There's a, you know, we have at least some of times in our lives there's this chance to open to that kind of beauty. Or just taking the time to actually show up for some part of our life that just seems like, you know, a mundane uh, daily action like having, having a cup of tea here on retreat, but actually being present for that. That can really um, support the sense of well-being or attention to our diet and exercise to whatever extent that might be possible, where we, we really, these things help support this balance of mind. Another thing that I think is really impor important for a lot of us, 
that we may not be so inclined to do is to intentionally reflect on our good qualities and kind, wholesome, skillful actions we may have done, to actually bring our goodness to mind intentionally and reflect on it. Because it's so easy for us to see the ways that we're not okay and not good enough and all of our flaws are glaringly obvious and we tend to look at that side of things. We have this disposition, this tendency to look at what's not okay. And we tend to dwell on them, on this side of things. But if we actually bring our goodness, our good qualities, skillful actions, wholesome things that we have done into our mind, this really brings us a more balanced view. It's not some ego trip of puffing up, oh, look how great I am. It's not about that. It's just giving us a more balanced way of looking where we don't overlook that side of things, which we can tend to do so much. We either overlook or diminish or dismiss these things as though they don't, they aren't really true. But if we were to look, we'd see there actually is a lot of goodness. Practices of gratitude can, can be an aspect of this where we really count our blessings and we look at the good things that are there. And as part of that, look at our own good heart. Just coming on a retreat like this and engaging with the precepts, that is great goodness. You can reflect on that. You can reflect on the fact that you care enough to do this difficult work. That's incredibly good. It's good to bring these things to mind. Reflect on that. So as, as, as practice unfolds, we start to touch into this quality of equanimity and there, there, comes, there can come times, there will do come times in practice where we start to open to a really deep kind of equanimity, a kind of um, real deep balance of mind. Sometimes it's called high equanimity or it's sometimes called um, equanimity regarding any formation, any arising or sometimes six-limbed equanimity because it is said to arise at all six of the sense doors, all contacts, equanimity to all that is seen, heard, felt, tasted, smelled, and everything that arises in the mind. And the mind can at times open into and rest in a state of deep kind of balance where it's not moved about by any contact, pleasant, unpleasant, neither of those. And when it's really strong and, and um, at a powerful state, which is, won't be, it's not like we don't get to just get there and stay there, maybe w until we're fully enlightened. <laughs> but we do taste it at times, and it's said to be similar to the mind of a fully enlightened being, this state of deep balance, a kind of perfect equipoise. And, it's, and there's uh, a lovely expression of this in the description of... Uh, the Bodhisatta, the Buddha-to-be on the night of his awakening in the story that's told there. And it's said that um, the Buddha had taken his seat under the Bodhi tree and had determined to sit there until what could be realized was realized. And it said he was assailed by the armies of Mara, Mara, Mara being the personification of, of um, greed, hatred, and delusion, you could say. Or you could say he had, you know, like a really bad multiple hindrance attack. <laughs> and so Mara shows up with all these missiles and, you know, armies. And, and it said that the Buddha, they just, his, his equanimity was so deep, they just all turned into flowers, all these weapons. And so then Mara tried other things, seductions, you know, oh, to unseat the Buddha. Here, come have this pleasure, come have that pleasure. Finally assailing him with doubt said that doubt was the Mara's last, last weapon. Nothing else worked. He said, who do you think you are? What gives you the right? And this is the gesture and the statue here. This is the Bhumispata Mudra. It's the touch the earth mudra. And it said that the Buddha touched the earth and said, and had the earth, he didn't speak. He said, the earth bears witness to my right to be here. And it said that the earth shook in response. So, it, and it said, the great one's mind was not moved by all these armies of Mara. So it's this, this openness, he was, he was there, but the mind 
wasn't moved. There was no resistance, no grasping. All attempts to cling and resist had fallen away. But it was not a state of defeat. So, you know, this, is, this isn't where we start, unfortunately. <laughs> this is like more of a <laughs> down, the <laughs> down the line. <laughs> Although we sometimes can get, we can get tastes in moments. You know, we can't just decide that's how I'm going to be, as I was saying. It's not something we can will ourselves into. This depth of balance, this arises through our practice and through being willing to open and allow and connect and fall and start over. <coughs> and so you could say that our practice, this training, what we're doing here is, is this gradual process of expanding the range of, of uh, times in life, of experiences in which we are free and, and this pos- possibility of balance is there. It's like removing eventually any boundaries where there is no situation, no circumstance where we, we don't have this sense of balance, where we can't come back to centeredness. And these two kinds of equanimity that I spoke about in these, these two kinds of, of this broad view, observation, and this kind of inner strength, this core of inner strength, these, these come together through our practice. These unfold and flow forth through our willingness to just keep at it. And so as our awareness and mindfulness strengthen, then equanimity follows. Mindfulness pulls that and uh, all these good qualities, uh, they follow in the wake of mindfulness. And we start to see with uh, a kind of, from a place of strength and, and from a place of greater independence, you could say. And this quality of balance, this is the core of strength that allows us to uh, stand in the middle of all things and not be pushed or blown over by it. So I'll end uh, the talk today with a short quotation from Sharon Salzberg. I think it's from her book on uh, loving kindness and the other Brahma Viharas. (coughs) To have the radiant, calm, and unswayed balance of mind that we call equanimity is to be like the earth. All kinds of things are cast upon the earth, beautiful and ugly things, frightful and lovable things, common and extraordinary things. And the earth receives it all and quietly sustains its own integrity. It is a state of peace to be able to accept things as they are. This is to be at home in our own lives. We see that this universe is much too big to hold on to, but it is the perfect size for letting go. Our hearts and minds can become that big and we actually can let go. This is the gift of equanimity. So let's just keep sitting quietly for another moment or two. (laughs) 